Okay, so, um, so whenever we planted the church in 2010, um, we, Chantal and I, we had a desire right from the word go that whatever money kind of came into the church, that we would give it away, that we would, not all of it away, uh, that we would give uh, at least 10% of what was coming in would go out. And uh, we give... 15% of what comes in and goes out. And, and 5% of it we wanted to give away internationally. And uh, on our hearts, for years and years, has been the country, the nation of Ethiopia. It, it so happened that uh, our dear friend Alastair Bennett, who uh, is a teacher, he's an RE teacher in this school where I was teaching uh, in a previous life. And um, we, we, we were good friends. And he had just returned from Ethiopia working with this wonderful charity called Stand By Me, and, uh, and he was sharing loads of great stories, and it just seemed such a God thing that we would support uh, the work of Stand By Me in, um, in the town of Bokaji, which I know I pronounce incorrectly, maybe you can correct me uh, on that. And so Alastair will be a friendly face to many of you and has spoken over the years. Uh, Johnny is the new Alastair, a reformed, younger Beardless, yes, you look naked this morning. <laughs> look at that. Who would have known? Uh, Johnny spoke uh, on our Christmas service in the evening briefly. Uh, he's been part of our church together with Laura and Karis for well over a year now. Uh, good friends of ours. Johnny and I were on a team together to Ethiopia over two years ago. And uh, just a great guy, a great communicator. And uh, we've invited him this morning to, uh, to update us and to uh, inspire us in terms of God's heart for the poor and to tell us about where some of the money that you guys are giving um, week after week and, and how it's being put to use. So uh, thank you for coming. Welcome. Go for it. Brilliant. Cheers. Good morning, everybody. It's, uh, it's great to see you. I don't know if you can remember what you were doing on the 5th of July, 2014. Anybody? Anybody? Any recollections of what happened that day? On holidays, maybe somewhere else? It's a day that for me will be forever etched in my memory. It was a Saturday, and one of the reasons it will be forever etched in my memory is on a Saturday, I don't like to be up pre-9 a.m. Uh, I got a poke in the nose at 10 to 7 on that Saturday morning, and as I kind of opened my eyes and everything was still blurry in front of me, Laura was standing beside me and she just said, It's time. And for a split second, I'm not going to lie, it was that early. I was like, time for breakfast? <laughs> time for, it's not time for anything. It's time. The baby is coming. And so I very calmly got up, sped down the motorway, flew into the Royal. And eventually, after a very, very long, very, very interesting day, got to meet this little child here. You can be a wee bit panto if you want. There you go. Fantastic. Now, I remember that day and will always remember that day because there's something incredible about children. There's something even more incredible whenever you get to meet your own for the first time. We'd seen photographs of Karis, and even though they're black and white, the main thing we were trying to figure out is, will she be a ginger? 
<laughs> it's important things to try and work out about your child. Turns out, turns out she's not. Um, but whenever you experience that, I remember that moment whenever, whenever the midwife turned around and went, here you go, this is your daughter. We didn't even know what she was going to be. She was an it for a long time, so she was. But there's a verse in the Bible. It's probably the easiest verse in the Bible for us all to agree on. It says this. It says, at that time, Moses was born and he was no ordinary child. It's so simple for us to agree on, but sometimes we look at people like Moses and we think, yeah, but you're like this superhero of the faith, and yet Moses was born just like us, just a child, but not ordinary. I can guarantee you if in that moment as Karis was passed over to Laura and held in her arms for the first time, if I'd have walked over and gone, hmm, she looks like every other child really, doesn't she? I'd have been and it would have been me staying in the royal for the next couple of days. So it would have. And so for me, it's this sense of kids are not ordinary. Kids are full of all of this incredible potential. And one of the awesome things that we get to do is we get to watch them grow. We get to see who they become. We get to see their lives pan out before them. I remember being a kid and just having this dream and aspiration of wanting to be someone who could change the world. And for those of you who have kids, you get to cheer them on. You get to champion them for us as a church as we hear about all the amazing things that happen with our kids here we're encouraging them to go to chase after their dreams to become the people that God has called them to be what an amazing thing and yet the reality for most kids in the world for quite a lot of kids in the world as we know is the world isn't quite just that pretty and that perfect we look to Jesus Jesus who came from heaven to earth that we've just celebrated Jesus who wasn't afraid to step into the messiness of life. And whenever we look at the Bible in James, we're given this instruction that religion that God looks for is not this self-righteous building up of ourselves, but religion that God looks for is that we look after orphans and widows in their distress and that we keep ourselves from being polluted by the world. And I would argue that as we do that first thing, that second thing starts to happen fairly organically. Jesus stepped into our mess. And when we look around the world today, we see that this place that we call home is a really diverse place. It's a really interesting place, but at the same time, it can be a bit of a messy place as well. Have a look at this clip. Home. It means such completely different things to every person in the world. Home is something you want to protect. People love their homes. And if they don't feel that they have a home, They'll risk everything to find one. The further we find ourselves from home, the more we miss it. And pretty much every single person who's been to space over the last 50 years has come to the same conclusion. It's the whole planet that's our home. When you're finally up at the moon, looking back on Earth, all those differences and nationalistic traits are pretty well going to blend and you're going to get a concept that maybe this is one world. And why on earth can't we learn to live together like decent people? On the first day up in space, we all pointed to our own countries. The third or fourth day, we were pointing to our continents. By the fifth day, we were aware of only one Earth. Wherever we live, the Earth is our home. We have to take care of it. 
and we should look out for everyone else who lives here. That has got to be our goal. I don't know about you, but one person who I've been paying massive attention to over the last couple of weeks is Tim Peake. Is anyone following Tim Peake on Facebook? Anyone know who Tim Peake is? Okay, International Space Station. He's currently flying around the world 16 times a day. I'm fascinated by that. And yet all of these guys who go up and look back from that vantage point, they look down and they don't see these little pockets of people. They see this place that we get to call home. And so what state is our home in? Well, there's 7 billion of us that live here. There's about 2 billion kids. And at the minute, pretty much every other child on planet Earth lives in poverty. That's a a scary number. Perhaps a more worrying number is this one, that every single day, 22,000 kids die because they just don't have enough. Now, I don't know about you, big numbers, sometimes they they really hit me, and and other times they kind of just wash over my back. This morning, 19% of the people on our planet woke up with enough money to buy probably a tin of Coke. That's about what they had in their, in their pockets. They live on about $1.50 a day. Half of the world, and this is a big improvement because it used to be that half of the world lived within this, bar, this, this area of extreme poverty. Now it's changed. About half of the world live on $2.50 a day. And just to give you a better idea, 80% of the world, four in five people live on less than $10 a day. Now, I don't know about you. I didn't wake up this morning feeling like I was in the top 20% bracket. I kind of always find that the world tells us to keep looking up, to keep wanting more, to keep trying to build bigger and stronger and everything for ourselves. And yet, whenever we look at the world, it's a pretty scary place sometimes. Gandhi said this. He said, poverty is the worst form of violence. And over the last 100 years, all the wars combined haven't had as much of an impact on the world as what poverty has. And so the question that I start to ask myself is, well, what can I do? Can I actually change the world? Arguably one of the greatest figures of the 20th century was this lady here, Mother Teresa, and she said this. She said, I alone cannot change the world, but I can cast a stone across the water that can create many ripples. I love that. I love that here's this woman who so many people look up to, who so many people were inspired by and challenged by, and yet she says, everything that I do can't change the world, but I can leave my mark. I love skimming stones. If you leave me anywhere near a flat plain of water with lots of smooth stones, I'll stand and literally skim them all day. 16 is my current record. That was like, it was one of those ones that went doof, doof, and I kind of counted those ones quickly. So 16, but you know, everywhere, everywhere where that stone hits, it creates ripples, and those ripples don't just stay in that space. They start to grow out, and they start to affect everything around it. And here's Mother Teresa saying, I want to live my life in a way that leaves a mark, that makes an impact on this earth. I don't know about you, that's what I want. As I step into a new year, I go, I want to live my life in such a way that when I look back, I can see the mark that has been made on this planet. The disciples 
went on a real journey with Jesus. They had to learn how to love. And one of the things that I love about Jesus is that he made that a really experiential thing. He didn't sit them down with lots of textbooks and say, here is all the things that you need to know. He just took them on the journey. And as they headed out in that journey, there were lots of times when they did some things that went really well, and there were other times when they had massive learning curves. And I don't know about you, but I find quite often in my faith journey, I have massive learning curves with Jesus. And I want to spend a wee bit of time thinking about one of those today. This is what happened. So when Jesus came out of the wilderness, a vast crowd was waiting for him, and he pitied them and healed their sick. Now, Jesus has come out. He's tired. He's worn down. He's probably, if it was me, I would certainly have been grumpy. I'd have wanted my own space. I'd have wanted my own time. I'd have wanted to find the nearest driving range and go and hit a bucket of balls or whatever else. And yet, when Jesus is confronted by the needs of others, he has compassion on them. He looks at them, and he goes about healing their sick. And this is what happens next. That evening, the disciples came to him and said, it's already past time for supper, and there's nothing to eat here in the desert. Send the crowds away so they can go to the villages and buy some food. And so the disciples, they look around. They're surrounded by this group. It's around 5,000 men. There's women and children involved there as well. And as the disciples start to look around, they see, they see a problem. We are in the middle of possibly the worst organized social get-together in the history of humanity. We have 5,000 people, and nobody has catered this event. These people are going to get hungry. And when people get hungry and they get angry, they get hangry, and they are not the people that you want to be surrounded surrounded by. And so the disciples, they turn around to Jesus and they go, look, Jesus, we need you to do something. We, we really care about all these people, we really care that they get something to eat because they're quite hungry. So if you could send them away so that they have enough time to get to the nearest shops and, and all the rest. And it's, it's not that we're thinking about us, it's purely that we're thinking about them. And yet the reality is the disciples looked at this and they didn't see potential. They saw a problem and they saw themselves being in the middle of it and they just wanted to try and get out of it as quickly as possible. And Jesus, he turns around and he says this, that isn't necessary. You feed them. I love that. I love that the disciples are standing. They see this massive problem. And yet Jesus essentially turns around and goes, I'm really glad that you noticed. How often is God waiting on us to notice? That he says, I'm really glad that you've noticed that issue because I've been waiting for you to see it because I want you to be part of the solution. And that's a real challenge for me, that Jesus says, well, actually, you've seen the problem, and I want you to go and feed those people. And so the disciples, they react, and, and probably, I'll paraphrase a wee bit, but they're like, are you out of your mind? You want us to feed 5,000 people? They do the quick mental maths. They're like, half year's wages? Do you really want us to take all that money and feed these people one meal? Is that really good economics, Jesus? And yet, what the disciples feel of the grasp is that the economics of the kingdom are completely different to our own, that Jesus sees this incredible opportunity, sees potential for the disciples to grow and for these people to be fed all at the same time. So the disciples say, what, we have exactly five small loaves of bread and two fish. And Jesus tells them to bring those to him. And then he told the people to sit down in the grass and he took the five loaves and two fish, looked up into the sky and asked God's blessing on the meal. Then he broke the loaves apart and gave them to the disciples to place before the people. 
And finally, everyone ate until they were full. And you know the story, they gather up the scraps afterwards. And here is this incredible encounter. But if you look it up in your Bible, you'll find it across the top. It says, Jesus feeds the 5,000. And I think this story needs to be retold just a, a little bit because I think that's right. Yes, Jesus performs this incredible miracle. But when you read the passage, the people who actually go around and give the food to the people are the disciples. The disciples are the ones who are tasked with going and providing the food for the 5,000. Jesus does a miracle to bring about the provision, and yet the disciples are the ones that go and feed this multitude. I don't know about you, if I had have been Jesus in this situation, I probably would have done things differently. I'd have probably been a lot more condescending for the disciples for a start. I'd probably been like, listen, guys, obviously you don't get this. Give me the loaves. Give me the fish. Stand back. Watch this. Rainbow whoosh, appears in the sky. Maybe a solar eclipse behind me. Hands up to heaven. Say a prayer. And then boom. And everybody has a packed lunch. And yet Jesus doesn't take the disciples down that route. He says, I want to teach you. I want to teach you gently and graciously about what it means to live within this miraculous thing of the kingdom of God. And so the disciples, they're given this food. They take it. They start to give it out to the people around them. And as they do that, it multiplies, it multiplies. Everybody has their fill. What an incredible thing. And it all comes down to these words of Jesus. They don't need to go away. You give them something to eat. And so when I look at the world around us and I see that, I think, wow, for me, part of being a Christian is to look after those people. Part of what God has blessed me with is to be a blessing to others. And here's an incredible quote by Mother Teresa. She says, The hunger for love is much more difficult to remove than the hunger for bread. And that's what we try and do in Stand By Me. We don't just try and feed people's immediate needs. We want them to know that they're loved. They're loved by us, but they're loved by Almighty God, their creator. Have a little look at this clip. These are our kids. They're full of fun. They're full of mischief. They're full of surprises. No two are the same. No two are even that similar. Birani is a smiler. She's warm, friendly, and never stops talking. She loves to study, cares about the environment, and wants to be a primary school teacher when she grows up. Raphael loves to swim. He's really good at maths and football. He's taking violin lessons, and let's just say he's getting there. He loves learning and takes care of his brothers and sisters. Sing is a dancer. She loves science class and Sunday school. She's kind, thoughtful, and always wants to help. She loves her new brothers and sisters, and she loves her new home. These are our kids. We have over 3,000 now, from Burma to Colombia, to Ethiopia. No two are the same. We'll try our best to guide them. We'll give them the best we have. They came from terrible circumstances. Some were orphans, some abused, some abandoned. The things you never ever want for your children, or anybody's children. Some will grow up to be leaders. Some of them will start their own schools. Some will get good jobs nearby and some will move away for work. We thought we were rescuing them, but they've 
totally changed our lives. These are our kids. We are their proud parents and we love them so, so much. So right around the world, we're looking after kids. We have about 3,000, just over 3,000 kids in our care. Paul and I were out 2013 in and around Easter time, although on Ethiopia time, it was like 2001 or something like that. It was great. Paul loved it. He was like 12 years younger. It was fantastic. And, uh, and we were out and we got to go and we got to see this incredible town of Bokaji, this place where so many of the people there are living in that bottom 20% bracket, living on the $1.50 a day and yet what we do in Stand By Me is we've created a school, we've created a space there and we've created lots of programs that reach out into the local community. One of the most important things that we can provide is, is water. Every day for uh, too many boys and girls and families around the world, they start their day with one of these, with a jerry can. One of these when it's full weighs about 20 kilos and quite often boys and girls will go and they'll head out and they'll find their nearest water source, whatever that looks like. It might be a pond, it might be a puddle, it might be a stream. I remember the most striking image that I had from that trip to Ethiopia was one day I'd gone out for a run with Tim and, and whenever we were out and we were running, we saw this woman and she was, run, she was sitting by this little pond in the middle of the, essentially a puddle really, at the side of the road. It had just been raining and this puddle had filled up and whenever the puddle filled up, she went and she sat with her dress and she took one tin in this hand, she took a plastic jug in this hand she poured the water so that it would go through her dress into the tin below that was her water filter that was her way of sanitizing this disgusting dirty muddy puddle and I remember as we ran past we just slowed down and our mouths just hit the floor and we we're like this cannot be life in this world and so one of the the things that we do is we look after boys and girls like Emmanuel Emmanuel who has his jerry cans who every day as members of his family will go out and fill them and we take them a water filter. The water filter is dead simple. It's not massive technology. It costs about 20 pounds to take and install in every house. And we take those and we put them in. And what happens is the kids come home or the family members come home, they pour the water into the top bucket. And throughout the day, that water then flows down slowly through the filter and ends up in a bucket at the bottom. And when it gets there, 99.9% .9 of the germs, the bacteria, the possible infections are taken out of that water. They last for two years. And when those two years are up, a new filter goes in. And that makes a massive difference because one of the huge things for our kids is that if they don't have access to clean water, they get sick. If they get sick, they're obviously for a start unwell, but then they miss out on things like school. They miss out on getting an education. They miss out on the things, the tools that help them to break out of this never-ending cycle of poverty. And Emmanuel, well, he's going to show us the other thing that we're really keen to do something about, the toilet. I'm sure that you maybe are not uh, too fond of toilets in foreign countries, certainly not ones like this here. This is where Emmanuel goes to the toilet. It's uh, not exactly a room with a view. Uh, and we have a lot of kids around the world who, because of where their toilets are positioned, that those then contribute to the likelihood that they're going to get sick. We'll not go into too much detail because we're going to eat donuts and drink tea in a minute and we don't want to be put off. 
But uh, for kids like Emmanuel, we want to make sure that we can help. And so we're trying to get these biogas toilets and we're rolling them out and putting them in for families who are really struggling to find clean, safe places to even do simple things like go to the toilet. Because the other thing is health really matters. We want to look after the holistic side of the young person. We want to look after every aspect of the kids that are in our care. This is Burhani. You saw her there in the little video. She loves animals. She lives with her granny. She lives with her granny because sadly her mum and dad both um, died from, from HIV. And so she stays with her granny. And one of the things that we're able to do for Burhani is that we get her her medication. The great thing is in Ethiopia that all of that medication is provided for free. Um, but without the appropriate diet, without having that good nutritional intake, actually the the medication that you take to make you better can make you worse. And so one of the things that we do is every kid who comes in who takes part in our school, right at the outset, they'll get checked over by a doctor. Any major health problems will be flagged up. Any kids that have HIV, we'll make sure to get them onto the, the correct treatment straight away. And then their families will receive extra food, these high nutritional meals to make sure that their kids have the best possible start in life. I'm sure that some of you have heard the story of Fikadu that Al would have told, this boy who came, who turned up, who was with us for no more than about six weeks before HIV took his life. And the amazing thing is, since that has happened, we have never had a single child in our care die from HIV, which is an amazing, amazing thing. And so these meals that are provided are literally a lifeline to families who struggle to afford to be able to feed their kids. But here's the other thing, school matters. I know that if you're a teacher, you're probably thinking right now, school doesn't matter. Don't make me go back there. I love my job, but in a few more weeks. Uh, and school does really matter. Whenever we, uh, Stand By Me, arrived in Bokaji, they came across a school that was being run by the local church. They were doing the best job that they could with really limited resources. This is the school building. It was literally two classrooms. And within those two classrooms, there were 220 kids. So for any teachers who are getting ready to go back to school tomorrow thinking, oh, so many children. Imagine walking into your classroom and seeing this here as the site that meets you. You've literally 110 kids squeezed into this tiny mud hut. No desks, no blackboards, no books, no real resources to teach with. And we saw this and we thought, this is a brilliant start that this church has realized the need here in the community, but we want to make things better than this. And so we were able to build a new building and in that building we were able to get kids their meals they have a, a big dining hall that they can get into whenever it's raining whenever they turn up in the morning they arrive at seven o'clock in the morning I have never seen kids be so happy about being a up at seven o'clock in the morning and more importantly arriving at school at seven o'clock in the morning and yet these kids come in they get their cup of sweet tea they get a big roll to have for their breakfast and then in the middle of the day they get their lunch when they go home they may not get a meal in the evening and certainly at the weekends, their diet might be a little bit more restricted. But those kids grow up and they get to grow up to be healthier and to have a hope for the future. This is the first class of kids who went the whole way through the school in Bokaji. They went through, they went on to high school and they've all just sat their, their most recent exams. There's 17 of them. 
10 of them are heading on to university, seven of them are heading on to vocational college. And whenever we were out, we got to meet this guy here. This guy is called Yusuf. Well, the guy on the left is called David, obviously. But uh, the guy on the right who you may not recognize, he's called Yusuf. And I remember before I went out, the question that was rolling around in my head is, what do you aspire to whenever you live in, in such a hard place to live? And I remember sitting down with Yusuf one day in one of the classrooms, and I was like, Yusuf, what do you want to be when you grow up? And without even really thinking about it, he looked me straight in the eye and he said, I want to be the prime minister. And I was like, wow, that's massive. You come from a family that couldn't afford to send you to school, and yet you want to grow up to be the prime minister. The obvious next question was like, why do you want to be the prime minister? Guess for me, if I wanted to be the prime minister, I'd like to be the most powerful man in the country. I'd like to make all those decisions, he said, because if I can be prime minister, I can help make Ethiopia a better place. And I thought, wow, if I lived here, you'd have my vote. And, and Yusuf, he went on, he's just done his exams. He passed with the highest marks in his class. He passed with straight A's and he's heading on to university. Whether he'll end up as the prime minister or not, who knows? But I know one thing, he will live a life that as that stone skips across the water, it will make a massive impact and that impact will be felt by many, many people. And so we as a church, we support Stand By Me. We support everything that happens. We're supporting these four kids and also Addis, who was still at school when that photograph was taken, but we're also supporting that project out in Dembadolo. We're supporting the school there. We're helping kids like Emmanuel to get a toilet. We're helping kids to have clean water. We're making sure that children like Burhani get the right food to help their bodies fight against this virus that they have through no fault of their own. And so for us, we live out this challenge of being the change in the world. I want to leave you with a story. It's a story about a runner. Paul, you might appreciate this one. And, and it was a, an, a Kenyan runner. She was running in numerous marathons, basically turned up and expected to win every race that she competed in. And she turned up for this marathon in China. There was no real competition. It was just a day at work for Jacqueline Kiplamo. She would head out. She would run her race. She would get the medal. She would take the applause. She'd get a check, maybe a bottle of champagne, and then she would go home again. And that would be her day's work done. And she started out on her race. When 10 kilometers in or six miles into the marathon, she came across this Chinese athlete. And she noticed that as he was running, he had this disability from a child that he had no hands. And so he wasn't able to drink any water. And she noticed that he was getting more and more and more dehydrated. And obviously, if you're going to run a marathon, you need to be taking in bucket loads of water to keep your body ticking along. And so Jacqueline Kiplamo, she started to slow down. And she started to run alongside this guy and at every water station she left a bottle for her and she lifted a bottle for him she drank her bottle and as she ran with him she passed him the bottle she ran with him up to the 21 mile mark and she made sure that he had everything that he needed so that he could finish his race at that point she realized that he had it in him to get across the finish line and so she went off and she ran as fast as she could the final part of her race the incredible thing is that she finished in second place in that race that is an unbelievable achievement but you know what i love even more you would be hard pressed to find out who won that marathon because if you type 
type in the name of the marathon, if you type in Jacqueline Kippelman into Google, this is a photograph that you will see time and time and time again. Because actually, it spoke to the world and it said, it's something about this. There's something about not having to be first all the time. Jacqueline Kiplamo showed the world that it's okay to be second if you're helping other people to finish their race. And for us in Stand By Me, that's what we want to do. We want to realize that God has blessed us incredibly and we want to be that blessing to the world. That as we live out our lives, that we leave an impact. It might not change the entire world, but for kids like Yosef, for kids like Emmanuel, for kids like Berhani, our support, what we do as a church, really matters. It leaves an impact on their lives and it helps them to get to know their creator and to step into the lives that they have been created for. Let's pray. God, as we discover what true religion is, as we discover what it means more and more each day to be disciples, God, would you help us to see the heart of Jesus? God, would you help us to learn those same lessons that the disciples learned, to live expectantly from a place of gratitude and generosity? God, help us not to to look at our world and see problems, but God, help us to see the potential in those people. God, help us to live with an expectation that as we take what we have, feeble as it might seem, but as we bring it to Jesus, that you multiply, that you do incredible things, and that, God, you then send us out to feed the crowds, to feed the multitudes. God, we pray that this year for children like Emmanuel and for children like Berhani and for children like Yosef, God, that it will be a year where they continue to discover more and more about themselves, that they discover more and more about you. And God, as they grow and as they chase after their hopes and dreams, God, would they be people who grow up to change the country that they live in? God, would they do that as they realize the kingdom of God come into earth where they are? And so, God, we pray for them. God, we pray for us. God, as we live this out, as we give generously to the the causes and the charities that we support, God, would that do something in those places? But, God, also would that do something in us? Would it change us and transform us to be more and more like Jesus every day? In his name we pray. Amen. Well done, mate. Thanks so much. it's quite emotional seeing some of the photographs there, some of the children that, uh, that I know and I recognize. Uh, the picture of the four children with one other missing and the five children that we have sponsored and provided uh, their education and all the other things that Johnny explained so brilliantly there for a number of years now. And um, it's just wonderful to see them. Just so that you know, we're, we're, we're going to do this because we have five children. Three of them, the rockets are going to sort of adopt uh, glass house children, you're going to adopt one. And then us big people, we're going to sort of adopt one as well. And what we want to do over course of time is, is try and create some sort of link, tangible link between you and these children uh, a bit better than we have been doing. And another thing is too, we'd love to take a team there. And we'd really, really love it to, to gather a group of us guys and, and other folks, other people that we know, and uh, go over there and spend a week or... 10 days, fortnight, or whatever it might be. That would be tremendous. Let's stand together. We're going to worship, and then we're going to pray, and then we're done.